Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Inside the Archives. I am your host, Marty Rosenbaum, XRT's digital content producer and all things social media. Inside the Archives is XRT's latest podcast where we pick the minds of our DJs and get the stories that help shape their career and also that really cool stuff that happened backstage that you may have heard rumors about but has never really been confirmed until right now. So thanks again for tuning in. We'll have part two of our conversation with Terry Hemmert coming up in just a little bit. If you listened to last episode, we spoke with Terry about Beatlemania and focused on what it was like to live through Beatlemania and how she would explain that phenomenon to a millennial. We'll pick up our conversation on a different note, looking at why the Beatles have been so successful in transcending generations and why haven't other bands been able to replicate this? How come the Beatles have been able to connect with younger generations and catch people's musical ears at such a young age when other bands of that era that have just as big of a notoriety have failed to do so? We'll also look at the Beatles' breakup and why it had the era finality that breakups don't seem to have today, where when an artist announces a hiatus or a breakup... It always comes with that feeling that they're going to be coming back together one day. There's going to be new stuff on the way. We'll also take a look at what's been happening in the world of music, and a lot has happened since our last episode. For one, we had an excellent Super Bowl. Unfortunately, the halftime performance did not live up to the hype that the actual game did. It was perfectly adequate, but we'll get to some listener comments on Justin Timberlake's performance, and it has to do with the blog I wrote earlier on this week on how you pay tribute to a legend, in specific, how you pay tribute to a legend of Prince's stature. So we'll get to my thoughts on it, as well as some comments that you left on Facebook. We'll also get to some other news about farewells in the world of music from some pretty big names and uh, musical staples that will no longer be with us in a performing sense after this summer. We'll also cover what's happening here at XRT, including an awesome promotion where you can win a trip to Arizona to watch some spring training baseball And go to the Innings Music Festival, which is put on by C3, the same folks that are behind Lollapalooza and have booked an excellent lineup. And you also get the chance to hang out with some guy named Lynn Bramer. I don't don't know what his deal is, but he seems to be a big deal around here. So all that is coming up in just a little bit. But right now, let's turn it over to our conversation with Terry Hemmert, looking at why the Beatles have been able to connect with younger generations. Well, yeah, and the messages that the Beatles are sending transcend time. They mm-hmm, still strike mm-hmm. me, and when I was younger growing up, sure. I could relate to them, even though the songs were written 30 years ago at mm-hmm. that point. Um, do you think that's one of the main reasons why the Beatles have resonated so well with the younger generation? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Because they stood for something. You know, a lot of uh, popular music doesn't really stand for something. It's like when you look at Marvin Gaye's career. You know, he put out one great hit song after the other. Great artist, but when he put out What's Going On, that transcended him to the next mm-hmm. level. Um, that made him more significant. And, and the frustrating thing is that album is still as relevant now as it was in 71. You'd think we'd figure out some of that stuff by now. Frustrating. But as an artist, he put our feelings into 
music. And also, in, in a lot of cases, the Beatles and Marvin Gaye and artists like that, Bob Dylan, uh, took us on the next step in our progression of awareness of what's going on outside of our own experience, you know. And uh, that was huge back in the 60s. Right. Well, an even more, I guess, fact-driven evidence, not fact-driven, data-driven evidence is that in 2017, the top-selling vinyl records, number one was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yep. Number two was Abbey Road. That's right. Number one. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, it's like I go to, you know, I teach at Columbia. And, and I, you know, I've argued with people. They said, oh, you know, you got to forget the old music after a while. You want to get a younger audience. I said, well, then don't get rid of old music because they're smart enough to like. They, that's why XRT is so powerful with them because they hear old and new. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just play old music. My God, I'd be bored after a while. I was like, I've heard this a hundred million times. I like the fact that we play new music, new artists, you know, and, and uh, some of them we've seen on this stage, you know, our first time. But the Beatles still resonate. I said, well, walk into my class with me sometime and you'll see people wearing Abbey Road t-shirts or somebody will do a term paper on some aspect of the Beatles. And I said, don't ever turn in a four-page paper about the history of the Beatles. It won't be any good. You can't do it in four pages. Pick a certain aspect of it. Plus, they buy vinyl. My students buy vinyl. That's, they might do a streaming thing or listen to XRT or something else, but uh, they buy a lot of vinyl. Yeah, well, when the Beatles hit Spotify and other streaming services, yeah. that became its own newsworthy item. Right, right. And it just keeps reintroducing itself to another generation. Mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, that might go up and down a little bit uh, over the years, but uh, I think Paul McCartney nailed it when years ago he said he wanted to be the Cole Porter of his generation because uh, their music is showing already that it has a staying power of like Cole Porter and George Gershwin and the American Songbook and before that Mozart and Brahms and Beethoven mm -hmm. and, and and it's really uh, on that level. In fact, you know the Classic Encounters series I do with the CSO uh, I've been doing that for like, 17 years now and starting from the very beginning, I always joke about how there's got to be a Beatle reference or it's in my contract, you know. <laughs> I don't have a contract, but it's in my contract. i got to have a Beatle reference. And so it's always a challenge to come up with a new one because it's like eight concerts a year, 17 years. <laughs> Whoa. But we did a piece on Serenade de Bergerac once, uh, uh, and, uh, and I picked Fool on the Hill. And it worked great, you know. And still do. And one of the, uh, Max Ramey, a, a viola player who's done several co-hosts with me, uh, the last time he was there, he said, I feel presumptuous, but I'm going to do a Beatle reference before Terry does. <laughs> Go right ahead, you know. And, uh, you know, and I had one of the string bass players who I figured was probably a Paul McCartney fan because he is really one of the great rock bass players. And it uh, turns out I talked to him on the phone before we did our lecture, and he was a big fan of Paul McCartney's. So on YouTube, I found something I'd never heard before. That's like it, I get sucked in this black hole. I spend hours just kind of going. This is how I found Gustav Mahler's Fifth Symphony on Heineken beer bottles, a bunch of German <laughs> college students, because I spent like two hours just following leads. But I found they isolated Paul McCartney's bass part on something on Abbey Road. And and I read uh, up on it, and George wanted him just to do a standard bass line. Paul said, no, I want to do something different. And no, 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 I just want... So Paul came in 
after the others left. He lived right around the corner at St. John's Wood. He came back to Abbey Road and laid down this track that when you hear it isolated, you don't notice it when you're hearing the song, but it pulls the song together. It, it takes a really good song and takes it to the next level. It makes it unforgettable. And a big part of it, once you hear it isolated, is you're thinking, that's it. Um, and George had to admit that Paul was right, and which I'm sure upset him. But uh, but they had, and and the bass player from the CSO, when he was hearing it for the first time in front of all these people, his jaw was on the floor. He said, "That's brilliant." I mean, my God, where did he come up with that? That's so different, and it really did uh, make that a much better song. This is already a good song, but he made it one of the best, mm -hmm. and for a part that a lot of people don't even notice. That's their attention to detail. And their, their high standards, too. They, they were really uh, hard on themselves. They were their own toughest critics, and they were always pushing to mm -hmm. be better, yeah. which kept them interesting. Yeah. Well, and there's a parallel I want to draw from mm -hmm. music today and when the Beatles ended in 1970. They right. finally broke up. Yeah. It was in, a divorce. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, this day, in this day and age, it seems when bands are breaking up or going on hiatus, it's really temporary. The last big example I can think of was LCD Sound System yeah. when they had their final shows in 2011 only to come back and headline Lollapalooza five years later yeah, right. and release an album in 2017, which in the grand scheme of things isn't really that long. And you have people like Jack White who's now releasing his first new album in three years and touring for the first time since then, which in this day and age seems like an eternity. 1970 when the Beatles were breaking up, was there ever that anticipation that, oh, these guys are going to get oh, back together? Oh, yeah. This is well, we just couldn't imagine them breaking up forever. But then when we started hearing some of the arguments and stuff that was going on, it really was a divorce because they loved each other. They were very close. They lived together for all those years. And as they say, even now, Ringo and Paul say, we're, we're two of the four people that know what that was like. Even the people that worked with them, even Brian Epstein, even George Martin, had no idea what it was like to be a Beatle. And it was not just celebrity. It was, it was something beyond that. And Because uh, even early on, they would bring kids in wheelchairs backstage thinking they could heal them. I mean, that's crazy. That freaked them out. Mm -hmm. But they went through a lot of stuff. They came of age together. They knew each other since they were schoolboys. You know, and, and they were so close. But as they got older, and they didn't tour anymore, so they weren't, you know, on, didn't have that communal experience, and they were all getting married and starting families and stuff. As they said, it's like, you know, you break up with your school friends and you go become a man. You go from a boy to a man. You know, you come home from the Army and you get a family started. You don't go down to the pub with your friends every night like you used to. And, uh, and it was painful. It really hurt them. And that's why they were so angry with each other, because they loved each other so much. They, didn't, they weren't angry because they hated each other. They were angry because they loved each other so much, and they felt a lot of betrayal because they were all changing. They were mm -hmm. going off in four very different directions. And drugs had something to do with it, too. It made them a little less irrational. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that was really hard on all of them. But it's great to see that they all kind of worked it out before yeah. it was too late, you know. But uh, and, and to see Paul and Ringo, and I'm so glad they aren't trying to cash in on the Beatles thing. They're still working. They're still doing great stuff, uh, really good tours, good albums. Uh, really, they get overlooked because there's no format for them. 
It's not classic rock. It's not new music. They're, they're 70 some years old. Mm -hmm. But luckily on Sunday mornings, I get to play those yeah. <laughs> albums and people are going, well, this, this is really a good song. I didn't hadn't heard that. Yeah, well, it's out there. Uh, I just got to find it. But, uh, but I, I, I'm glad they didn't try to just cash in on that. But both of them have a real deep respect and love for their relationship as the Beatles. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, one of the things that touched me most was the Beatles anthology that came out a few years ago. That brought a whole new wave of fans in, too. I tell you, people just, you know, kids were saying, wow, why wasn't I alive when this was going on? But um, one of the things Ringo said is they were four guys who really loved each other, you know, and they toured together. They went through all these life experiences that, we can only imagine what it'd be like, and all the pressure and tensions they were under. It's a wonder they didn't hate each other. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how well they got along. But he said there was four guys that really loved each other, and for Ringo, who didn't have any siblings, it was like brothers. Right. Well, and it seems like that's something you can't put a price tag on. Oh no. Which is why 1970 yeah. was the end to it. That's why it was so hard on them. It was really hard, and uh, and I'm glad they made peace. You know, Paul and Yoko now they've made peace. You mm -hmm. know, it's just. Um, and, and I've been impressed that people I've had the opportunity to work with over the years, especially at, at the Fest for Beatles fans, where I'm spending a whole weekend with everybody from Harry Nilsson to Peter and Gordon and Billy J. Kramer, who the Beatles wrote songs for. They, you know, he grew up in Liverpool, too. To, to get to know these people as friends, uh, really, and, and know that they're quality people in their own right, that if they'd never met the Beatles, I'd want to know these people. But because they met the Beatles, we got to meet each other. And because they knew the Beatles, they give me even more insight into um, why so many people were loyal to them. They had a really interesting, you compare the Beatles' inner circle to Elvis's inner circle, or a lot of other, Michael Jackson, you know, I mean... Some, sometimes these stars, you know, will surround themselves with the wrong people and they don't know and the people taking advantage mm -hmm. of them. It didn't happen with the Beatles. And um, it's, they inspired a great deal of loyalty, even to people that got burnt by the business people that took over Apple and they screwed a lot of the people that had been with them from the beginning. And they never felt bitterness towards the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And they still say, all these years later, it's still the most exciting thing ever happened to me in my life I love them you know and and to get to know Frida uh, the fan club secretary for the 10 years they were together and who knew them when she'd go on her lunch breaks to the cavern club and see them and then Brian Epstein offered her a job and right up till the day when she closed down the fan club after they broke up she's marvelous we're great friends now in fact I'm trying to get my health together so I can get over to Liverpool she wants me to come over and just great people and and it just it, I think it reflects on the Beatles themselves that they inspired that kind of loyalty and getting to know Yoko over the years. You know she was very helpful with the Peace Museum when I was helping out with them and and other times I've seen her. And she um, is just an amazing woman. Yeah. She's funny. She's sweet. You know she's all the things John saw. You know you can see that. But she got such bad press, you know, being an Asian woman breaking up the Beatles, oh, crap, and an artist, you know, in her own right, you know. Um, you can see why John loved her. But it's just really been great to meet all the, you know, meet Julian and Sean both, and they're really great guys. And, and, and it's really been, as a fan, 
it's not like I'm, ooh, they're the Beatles' sons, but they're wonderful people in their own right. Right. Well, and we're lucky to have you to be able to share those experiences firsthand oh, with us and, and provide these fan. wonderful stories. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, so before we let you go, okay. I have one, one more question as it relates to Breakfast with the Beatles. Sure. How do you keep finding all these covers? Oh, I would be doing that if, if I wasn't doing the show. I would just yeah. do it to There's amuse myself. Out there versions of Beatles songs that you I hear have on been the show. looking for that. And I think that's uh, not, I, I do upset the purists. Sometimes I'll get an email and say, just play the Beatles. Play side two of Abbey Road. And I go, well, you own Abbey Road in probably five different formats. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you play Abbey Road? <laughs> or if you want just catalog Beatle material, Hit shuffle on your CD player, you know. It's it's doable. I'm trying to do every Sunday morning something you can't recreate at home. And I think by hearing some of the Roots music, by hearing Little Richard, and we did a lot on Chuck Berry when he died because he was a huge influence on the Beatles. And and Professor Moptop's great at doing this too, tying in the coasters and all these, the more obscure influences. I think that helps you appreciate the Beatles as musicians to see what they were listening to and what inspired them to start a band and do this. And then to hear all different kinds of interpretations and to see that in 2018 people are still covering Beatles songs. Mm -hmm. And what I like is when it's not just a note-for-note -note thing, because anybody can do that. You know, you take four piano lessons and then do that. Uh, but when they can reinterpret it, like especially like if it's a jazz artist or a soul, or like Betty Lovett, great uh, soul singer, she's done some amazing covers of uh, of Beatles songs and very different. You know, you totally take the song and it takes you to a different place. I think that's fascinating, and I think that makes you hear the original in a little different way too. And I know the Beatles used to love that because they even had a TV special in '64 where they had Cilla Black and some other singers doing Lennon-McCartney songs. And they were on there, Lennon-McCartney hosting the show. In fact, I asked Paul years ago, I said, what's your favorite Beatle cover? And without hesitation, he said, Esther Phillips, and I love her. And that was like a contemporary cover. That came out around the same time that the Beatles recorded for A Hard Day's Night. And she was an R&B singer and then later morphed into a jazz singer. And, and I know that version. It's a great version. And he didn't hesitate. He said, we were so thrilled that, like, Esther Phillips would do one of our songs. You know, it was like, whoa. <laughs> and it still was his favorite, probably for sentimental reasons, too. Mm -hmm. But I just, I love it. And I love it when local bands do it, like Tribute Saurus. They did every Beatle album from the beginning through the end. And I, uh, they were generous, uh, dedicated some of the money to uh, my mom's scholarship fund uh, and uh, for music scholarships. And so I emceed those last few shows and and Professor Moptop and I had some walk-on parts. It was great. I got to come up and say cranberry sauce at the end of <laughs> the strawberry fields. And, and he came out with his Ramones alarm clock and did the alarm clock going off on a day in the life. And, and, we, and I yelled, I've got blisters on my fingers and a white album. Uh, but you know, it's we just still have a good time. When I go do Beatle Fest, I see these kids out there dancing when Liverpool's playing all these songs. And these kids are in grade school. And they're having the time of their lives. Oh, my God, they're so excited. They're, it's like summer camp for Beatle fans. 
And, and I just, I get a vicarious thrill from that because I remember what it was like to be 13 and dancing to I Saw Her Standing There. <laughs> just like, yeah. Well, and as someone who, as a 13-year-old, did the exact same thing, yeah. <laughs> we're glad you're able to share this music well, with us and to uh, take the time out to speak. Well, it's a privilege. And if I could just, one acknowledgement for Jim Stagg, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, the disc jockey that was interviewing Ringo, I did get to know him later when I moved out here uh, to go to college. And, uh, and after he left radio, he ran Record City, a great record store out in Skokie. And, uh, and I was doing morning drive and stuff, so he knew who I was, but he didn't know that I'd met him a couple of times when I was a college kid. And he was always very encouraging and very thoughtful and very nice uh, to me. And, and I took him out to lunch. I had one of our salespeople call and say, Terry, I'd like to take you out to lunch. And he's, why do you want to do this? I said, because it was a picture of you interviewing Ringo. And, and then he said, well, nobody remembers me because I didn't have a gimmick. Back then, top 40 D DJs were, they had horns and hammering on phone books. You probably don't know what a phone book is, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> Vague recollection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, they had all these gimmicks. And they were screaming or these nicknames. And Jim Stagg was just straight ahead. I said, Jim, listen to FM radio. We don't sound like Barney Pip. We sound like Jim Stagg. And what I always liked about him is that he really knew the music. He was also the music director and cared about the music and respected the music. He wasn't like a grown-up that was like playing these stupid kids' songs. He respected the music. And he did all three American tours with the Beatles and interviewed him. I remember tuning in CFL and hearing him interview Ringo calling in from London when the White Album came out. And he asked really good questions. He was smart and a grown-up. And, and I said, that really influenced me, you know, not just getting into radio, but just how to present myself, you know. And uh, he was blown away. He couldn't, and, you know, and it was just great to get to meet him a few times. And then when he passed, I went to his wake because I just respected him so much and I wanted to acknowledge what an influence he was, you know, on me. And I met his whole family, his, his wife and his daughters and... They were lovely, and now, you know, I still know them. In fact, they came to the fest for Beatles fans one year. And um, and he actually lent me a whole bunch of tapes of his interviews that he hadn't opened up the box since the 60s, and I get to play them on, on the air. And, uh, and one day they came to my legendary Christmas party that you've had the occasion of showing up at, you know, and they brought me a present, and... Usually it's so chaotic, I just stuff them under the tree. But I thought, well, this is big, and this is Jim Stagg's family. I'm going to open it right now. And I open it, and it was a picture of Jim with his microphone and a little tape machine with all four Beatles, 1966 tour. And they were all sitting around him smiling. And they loved him because he was a good guy. And he wasn't one of these jerky, hey, I'm with the Beatles, like Marie the K. Uh, and... Uh, and I've gotten to know people that were on those tours, and they said the Beatles loved Jim Stagg because he was smart and respectful and tr treated them like musicians, not just teen stars. And uh, she gave me that picture, and I have it hanging up by my door, so every time I walk out of the house, I see Jim Stagg and those four Beatles. And if it wasn't for those five guys, I don't know what path my life would have gone. I wouldn't be in Chicago. I wouldn't be on the radio. Uh, maybe I'd be in a convent somewhere. Uh, cloistered nun, that would be weird. Uh, but I'm not the only one. There are so many other people that are in the music business or in the arts or in teaching or something because of the Beatles. And they've gone on a life 
paths that they might not have thought about if it hadn't been for their experience as Beatle fans. And that's why it's more than just records. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's life-changing. Yeah. It's beautiful. And I love any opportunity I have to thank them and thank the people around them because I'm very thankful for it. Yeah. Well, and we have to thank you for sharing your love oh, thank you. the Beatles with us and well, bringing us into that wonderful world. So, Terry Hammer, that's thank great. you so much for joining us. Thank you. Once again, big thanks to Terry Hammerd for joining us and talking about Beatlemania for part two of our conversation. If you're looking for the first part or want to listen to each episode back-to-back, all you need to do is go to 93xrt.com slash inside the archives, and you'll be able to find all episodes that we've recorded. We're on number three right now, so if you want to add that as a bookmark, if you're a loyal listener, hey, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Leave a review on iTunes or other podcasting services, but... That'll be the link you'll want to head to in the future to find a full archive of episodes and to pass along to friends as well. So, news headlines that have happened since our last podcast have been pretty big. We had a Super Bowl performance that, in my opinion, was fine. Nothing too special with Justin Timberlake performing in Minneapolis. I think it was what you would expect out of a Super Bowl performer, not going above and beyond as we've seen in recent years, but certainly enough to satisfy the crowd and to deliver on a stage such as the Super Bowl. However, it wasn't his performance that generated headlines. It was news that came out prior to the Super Bowl when a rumor started making its rounds that he would have a Prince hologram during the performance. Naturally, this didn't sit well with fans, and it wasn't until the night before the Super Bowl when Sheila E. went on Twitter and told everyone to calm down, there was going to be no hologram, And then she had a conversation with Justin Timberlake, who has a tremendous amount of respect for Prince. During the Super Bowl, Timberlake performed Prince's classic, I Would Die For You, while a video of Prince singing was on a projector. Naturally, people on the internet are going to get upset about it. You're going to criticize the performance, no matter how you pay tribute to the artist. Uh, And when you're on a stage as large as the Super Bowl, you're going to get criticism no matter what, since there are over 100 million people watching. I'm not sure what the final number is. But it's seen all around the world. And when you have that many people voicing their opinion, there's going to be some negative ones there as well. So the piece I wrote earlier this week was called How to Pay Tribute to a Legend. And I thought this was a great case study in doing it on a macro level. In my opinion, I think the best way to pay tribute to an icon like Prince is to do something similar to what Timberlake did. You had to play a Prince song when you're in his hometown of Minneapolis. And when you're on a stage as large as the Super Bowl, doing it with the song I Would Die For You, a well-known Prince classic, you can't go wrong with it. However, I think it would have been nice for Timberlake to have one of Prince's collaborators, even a family member, other musicians he's played with in the past, such as Sheila E., come out and join him. Um, He played such a monumental influence to the Minneapolis music scene, and I thought, Timberlake could have done a better job at highlighting that, even by bringing out a Minneapolis musician. Additionally, it would have been cool just to have a photo or video montage playing in the background. Well, perhaps a Prince track played over it. I know this takes away from the attention on Justin Timberlake, but it would be a nice extra step to show your respects to someone like Prince. Now, our listeners, when I pose the question how they would pay tribute to someone like this, they're overall pretty happy with how Timberlake did it. Uh, one listener, Randy H., said, I didn't see anything wrong with it. It was a short tribute and rather subdued. I thought it was respectful. 
Paul S. said, It was Minneapolis. Prince should have been acknowledged. All the purple was cool. Nice effort. Would have been better if Justin Timberlake wasn't fronting the whole thing. Mary W. added, I believed it was a deserved tribute, and it was done in a very classy way. Finally, Heidi N. got straight to the point. This was one of my favorite comments we had, saying, Justin Timberlake did just fine. Now play some Prince. That's a spirit. Uh, so I think overall, people are of the similar mindset that, yes, it was nice to see Justin Timberlake covering Prince with the Purple Rain video of I Would Die For You playing in the background. But there was, there was a little bit more that could have been done. And when you're in Prince's hometown of Minneapolis, you're not going to go wrong by including more Prince content. In other news, we had a couple of artists announce they'll be stepping away from the stage. In one person's case, it could be forever. In another's case, it's more up in the air when we'll see him. Paul Simon followed up on a recently announced farewell concert in London and revealed that he'll be retiring following his upcoming tour. In a Facebook post, Simon said, I've often wondered what it would feel like to reach the point where I'd consider bringing my performing career to a natural end. Now I know. It feels a little unsettling, a touch exhilarating, and something of a relief. Fans in Chicago hoping to catch Simon one last time will be able to see him at the United Center on June 6th. When he wraps up his tour in London, it looks like that'll be it for Simon. Additionally, Dave Matthews Band violinist Boyd Tinsley announced he'll be taking a break from the band and touring. Uh, this announcement came just a night before Dave Matthews Band was set to play a Super Bowl pre-party, and he revealed the news on Twitter by saying, I need to take a break from the band and touring to focus on my family and my health for a while. I'll miss you guys and my brothers in the band, but I'm somewhat worn out and need to spend more time with my family and bring more balance to my life. Dave Matthews Band issued a statement on their Facebook page showing support for Tinsley and his decision, and while it'll be a loss because Tinsley has been with the band since 1992, it sounds like it was much needed, and there's really no reason to speculate further why Tinsley needs to take this break, and we can only hope that he gets the rest he needs and is able to take care of any issues he has so we can see him join Dave Matthews Band on the stage in the near future. So before we wrap things up here at Inside the Archives, let's take a look at what's going on at XRT this week. And over the coming weeks, we have an excellent giveaway called the Baseball Bands and Bramer Giveaway. It's happening all month long where you can win a trip to Arizona for a four-night stay this March, along with tickets to a spring training game and two three-day passes to Innings Festival. Innings Festival is a music festival done by C3, as I mentioned earlier, the same folks that are behind Lollapalooza. And they booked a very good lineup with many familiar faces to XRT listeners, including the Avett Brothers, Counting Crows, The Head and the Heart, The Decemberist, and many more. So if you want to win this trip, all you need to do is listen at 7.45 a.m. every weekday for Joe Madden reciting a featured song lyric on XRT. Once you hear it and know the song lyric, Call in and be the first person with the correct song title, beginning with the 10th caller, to win that day's trip. So, to round up, you'll get the trip to Arizona, four-night hotel stay, tickets to spring training, two three-day passes to Innings Festival. Oh, and you get a company, Lynn Bramer, your best friend in the whole world, who, on a trip like this, will be an excellent companion. Our Friday feature, if you are listening to this today on February 9th, is R.E.M. and Santana. If you are listening after February 9th, our Friday feature that day was R.E.M. and Santana. We'll also be going back to 1978 on Saturday morning flashback this weekend with host Johnny Mars. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again for tuning in to Inside the Archives. If you are curious about when other episodes will air, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of our handles at 93XRT and 93XRT.com, where you can find out more information about future episodes. If you're listening on iTunes or want to share this podcast with friends, please subscribe and leave a review for us. It makes me feel good because... It's a newer venture that we have at XRT and just goes to show that uh, people are listening and giving their support, which I am thankful for. Once again, for Inside the Archives, I'm Marty Rosenbaum. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.